Welcome everyone. Uh, we'll begin uh, with our sitting. As we settle, I want to turn our attention to something that's essential and will be the theme uh, for today. In our tradition, we say, now we're going to sit. Sometimes we say Zazen, which is sitting Zen, sitting. We don't usually ring the bell and say, we're now going to meditate, an activity around which you may have many ideas. The bell is rung and we do something with our body. It's an embodied action, we sit. And the instructions are about uprightness and stillness and silence. How do we come into a relationship with our body? Simply breathing, sitting. Our body receives the vibrations of the bell we hear. Sensations move in our body. Maybe a relaxation, maybe a tensing, maybe some ease or some discomfort. All the immediacy of embodied life.
the verse on the Han which calls us to meditation in a traditional temple. The first line of that verse says, great is the matter of birth and death. And we can imagine that as a, a powerful existential conceptual entry point, but really it's just the body. We're born from a body as a body. And when we drop our body at the end, we receive a body and give up a body. And now the verse of the robe. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Even in that verse, um, which we will so often repeat at the very end of morning zazen before we go to service, we say wearing the universal teaching, wearing on our body. One of our central ancestors, Dogen Zenji, who was the founder of our school, um, in the 13th century in Japan, quoted a 9th century Chinese Chan master. Uh, in one translation about the line in his quotation says, in this life, save the body, which is the fruit of many lives. In this life, save the body. Save the body. And I think Dogen is saying that our lives and our bodies are precious, which we know. Not just because taking on a human life 
offers us a path to awakening. But because this life is a gift that's given to us, and so we have a responsibility uh, to keep that gift in motion, to take good care of it, and to take good care of this, this one body in which we find ourselves. And this is what we all have as our foundation for practice. And it's a little surprising for some people who uh, come to a Zendo. Um, it seems like such a, a distant memory coming to a Zendo with others right now. I, I long for it. When we come to a Zendo, people have ideas about Zen and the intellectual aspects of it and the complexity of koans or this or that. But really what they find when they come is that we're asked to do things with our body. How to step into the Zendo, how to bow. <clears throat> so this is what the Buddha model by sitting down under the tree for awakening and our Zen ancestors cultivated in the form of practice that they handed down to us. Do certain things in a certain way with your body. And why is this important? Not because it's the right thing or a spiritual thing, because <clears throat> it brings us into the essential nature of who and what we are, and that's what we wake up to. <clears throat> I want to talk about three aspects of body, specifically of saving the body. And then I want to talk about the three aspects of Buddha's body in the traditional teachings. So let's start with our current situation in which we find ourselves, in which there is a huge emphasis on the pandemic, of course, on racism and the killings that have come from that, and with both and more, trauma three aspects of, of practicing with the body. First, just a brief reflection um, on the pandemic. How do we save our shared body, the shared body of humanity? I, I don't really have to say too much about this because it's apparent if you're paying attention. And it's very, I think it has to be understood as personal. When we think about it in large numbers, it can be overwhelming. It's also easy to be a bit dissociated uh, unless it's happening in your family or to you or to someone that you know. Talking to healthcare workers, it becomes more personal. Talking to people at the funeral homes, people who are gathering uh, the bodies makes it more personal. This is something happening to our body and our grief and our anguish and our desires to do something good and to help is about saving the body. Save the body. In this life, save the body, which is the fruit of many lives. Our practice. And also very powerfully, we're being shown recently and reminded of the 
well, the statement that Tana Hisi Coates has made so powerfully in the book that he wrote to his young black son. He said, here's what I would like for you to know. In America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. These are things that we're coming to see more, more closely. It's not something I, I have to maybe rub in, but it's important to know that the question is, is how to save the body. And this life save the body. Ta-Nehisi Coates goes on to say, all our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscles, extracts organs, cracks bones, and breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. And this life saved the body, which is the fruit of many lives. So whether through the worldwide pandemic or the systematic violence, uh, we also often experience something that we now understand as trauma. <clears throat> the container where trauma is held is the body. Bessel van der Kolk, who's well known in his research in this area, very famously said, the body keeps the score. The memory of trauma is encoded in the viscera. <clears throat> he says a little further on, and I think this is important to remember, the natural state of mammals is to be somewhat on guard, protect ourselves. However, in order to feel emotionally close to another human being, our defensive system must temporarily shut down in order to play, mate, nurture our young. The brain needs to turn off its natural vigilance. Many traumatized individuals are too hypervigilant to enjoy the ordinary pleasures that life has to offer, while others are too numb to absorb new experiences or to be alert to signs of real danger. Actual physical contact can trigger intense reactions. However, achieving any sort of deep intimacy a close embrace, sleeping with a mate, wholesome sexuality requires allowing oneself to experience immobilization without fear. Immobilization without fear, just we sit silently and in stillness. It's especially challenging for traumatized people to discern when they're actually safe and to be able to activate their defenses when they're in danger. This requires having experiences that can restore the sense of physical safety. Save the body. Save the body. 
the fruit of many lifetimes. And I'll just remind you uh, of the book that so many of us are reading, My Grandmother's Hands, about racialized trauma, where the author says one of the best things each of us can do, not only for ourselves, but also for our children and grandchildren, is to metabolize our pain and heal our trauma. When we heal and make more room for growth in our nervous systems, we have a better chance of spreading our emotional health to our descendants. It's not just for us. In contrast, when we don't address our trauma, we may pass it on to future generations, along with some of our fear, constriction, and dirty pain. So whether we look at the broad and overwhelming impact of the pandemic and the just sheer numbers of bodies to the horrible violence of black bodies and how then trauma affects everyone at every level because of all of these things. It calls us to understand what it means to have a body, to receive a body and to give up a body. The great matter of birth and death. And the Buddha, Buddhist teachings include a way of understanding what they call the three bodies or the three kayas in Sanskrit. And to understand these helps us deepen and expand who we think we are and what we think a body is. So I wanted to, to offer a little bit of those traditional teachings, but I wanted in the context we're actually, it's actually happening. It's not just some Buddhist idea. These are ways to deeply understand and go beyond just the content, just the narrative of what we see on the news or experience around us all the time. And these teachings are meant to um, help us have an awakened view that would serve as a source of health and vitality. And if it was fully realized, it would actually change the way we relate to each other and to ourselves about the shared body of the pandemic, the one precious body of humans of all colors and the damaged, traumatized and healing bodies in which we live. And those three um, traditional names are the Nirmana Kaya, they're all Kayas, they're bodies, the Dharma Kaya and the Samboga Kaya. So those are fancy sounding Buddhist things. Let's uh, just unpack them just a little bit. And as we reflect on these things, um, I want to hopefully this calls up things that will be useful for you to reflect on in your own practice and, and maybe some questions later on. So most basically the first, the Nirmanakaya refers to the actual physical and mental manifestations of Shakyamuni Buddha, as well as all other enlightened individuals. It's the embodiment of. Nirmana is usually translated as um, manifestation, apparition or incarnation. It's the idea that um, we're born, uh, if you have some sense of rebirth, it's not required that anyone believe in that, or that your current birth anyway is the nirmana or the current manifestation or incarnation of, of this one. And we're fortunate to be human beings in this life. The human realm is the one in which 
a being can traverse the path towards greater freedom, enlightenment, liberation, and can assist others in that process. So whether you believe in actual rebirth or not, we are in this manifest body, which is being reborn in every moment. Their nirmana, this manifestation is being reborn every moment with each breath, each time you sit down, each time you get up. And this is the body of the Buddha. The Buddha is only manifest as and through our human bodies. And so we have to ask a question, how are we gonna use these bodies? How are we gonna take care of these bodies? Save the body in this life, save the body, which is the fruit of many lives. That's the Nirmanakaya, the actual manifestation. The Dharmakaya, uh, Dharma you know, is a Sanskrit word, which has a lot of different meanings, but refers to the teachings, but also the, the, the truth of who we are and how things actually work. Um, what confusion and wisdom are, the path to realization or liberation, and the release from unnecessary suffering or pain. And so the Dharma also refers to the action of individuals who are awake, bodhisattvas. So Dharmakaya, Kaya is the body, the Dharma, body of the Dharma then from the earliest teachings refers to the teaching bodies, the instructions. Uh, it also refers to all of our capacity to work in accord with what's real and true. The precepts offer us a foundation. It's part of the Dharma that helps us. Nirmanakaya, we're manifest as a body. We can follow the Dharmakaya the teachings, the realization of what it's like to actually move as a Buddha in the world, a free, free being. So the Dharma of wellness, recovery, and non-separation is part of the Dharmakaya. We can work to keep ourselves and others well. We can recover from illness or trauma. We can see non-separation and begin to repair terrible, terrible breaks and rifts. Letting go of apparent solid realities that we cling to and see the truth of the way things really are, impermanent, interdependent, flowing, contingent. And this guides beings who discover their responsibilities to and for each other in a body, their namanakaya, acting in accord with reality in Buddha's way as the dharmakaya. And then the sambhogakaya, is the term that use sometimes is translated as the enjoyment body of the Buddha. It doesn't mean just you know happiness though. It's um, it refers to the idea that when one has the eye to see, then you realize a whole world of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, of Dharma protectors, of teachers, embodiments of energy and freedom. The whole world is this amazing outflow of manifestation is present here and we're in the midst of it and we're not separated from this great truth. So in the Sambhogakaya, the body Sambhogakaya is the realm in which everything is in 
plain sight, but it's hidden. If you haven't, if you don't practice, you don't notice it. Um, you know, the sanghas in the UK have taken names that suggest this, nothing special, nothing hidden, nothing missing, nothing more, nothing extra. It's all here. We may catch it in glimpses, but it's a world of beauty, power, meaningfulness, and it's completely available to anyone who practices in a wholesome and wholehearted manner. When we chant, for example, a formless field of benefaction, in that chant, we're calling on the Sambhogakaya, the amazing and incomprehensible beauty of the wholeness in which we rest, in a seeming apparent opposition, it's not an opposition to the Narmanakaya, the actual body. When we um, read Dogen, and he said, when we let go of the clinging to our everyday form, and we are, quote, actualized by the myriad things, we come into being because of everything else. We realize that our presencing in each moment, our presencing is an evanescent, ongoing flow only because of everything else and all beings. I call this the embodied inconceivable. That which is beyond conceptual thought, it can be contained, but it's completely realizable as embodied reality. So we have the Nirmanakaya manifestation, the Dharmakaya, the way things move, the truth about things and the teachings, and the Sambhogakaya, the infinite actuality of the fullness of life and everything in the universe. I'm going to read one more description of the Sambhogakaya because it's kind of um, the ground out of which everything comes. And this is uh, from a teacher, John Baker, who worked with Trungpa Rinpoche a long, long time ago. And he wrote an article in um, Tricycle, which is probably six years old now, called The Three Bodies of the Buddha. But listen to the words here, it's, it's quite lovely. And it points to um, sort of the, the beauty of what practice offers us in an embodied way. In his description, he says, and finally there is the Sambhogakaya, which refers to the aspect that as these things, the manifestations, arise and pass away, they communicate to us what they are. The redness of red, the sweetness of sugar, the cold of ice, the sadness of sorrow. It is precisely because all phenomena are rising out of nowhere and pass away into it again, because they are utterly transitory, that they can and must express their qualities so vividly and beautifully and meaningfully. This is the Sambhogakaya. And it's the realm of so-called magic. Not, not magic in the sense of um, walking through walls or reading minds, but magic in the sense of the extraordinary beauty 
and meaningfulness and value of this world seen nakedly, stripped of the false ego-centered and emotionally laden thoughts and dreams through which confused sentient beings, that's us, see their lives. Sambhogakaya is the sacred world. In confused world, things have greater or lesser value in terms of what they can do for me. In the sacred world, things are of value for no reason at all. All life has intrinsic worth. So we understand the Nirmanakaya, the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and all of them we can read through the pandemic, through racial injustice and the killings and the trauma that we can all experience. Here, I'm gonna give you an example before I end this. I'm almost, almost there. And I'll use racism at the center of this right now, just um, because it's, it's so important. And I'm gonna quote Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, again, because he is so eloquent in these ways. So I want you to see that these aren't just esoteric teachings. Number one, we are one body in many forms, but embodied form matters. This is the Nirmanakaya. Here's Tanahisi. Slavery is not an indefinable mass of flesh. It is a particular, specific, enslaved woman whose mind is active as your own, whose range of feelings is as vast as your own, who prefers the way the light falls on one particular spot in the woods, who enjoys fishing where the water eddies in a nearby stream, who loves her mother in her own complicated way, thinks her sister talks too loud, has a favorite cousin, a favorite season, who excels at dressmaking and knows inside herself that she is as intelligent and capable as anyone. For this woman, enslavement is not a parable. It's a damnation. It's the never-ending night. And the length of that night is most of our history. Now, these are difficult things, but it's important to see that this is the Nirmanakaya, the actual, real, everyday manifestation of a real person. It may sound like a difficult story, and it is, and should be known as such. How do we meet that with care, and with a fierce willingness to practice deeply. The Dharmakaya, our lives express the one complex and simple truth of equality and the shared force of real life on earth. This is the Dharmakaya, the reality of how things go, the teachings. Tanahisi again. The forgetting, he's speaking about something here that he's been talking about is habit is yet another necessary component of the dream. That's a capital D, the dream of how things could be from a certain perspective. They have forgotten the scale of theft. This is about the dream of whiteness. They have forgotten the scale of theft that enriched them in slavery, the terror that allowed them for a century to pilfer the vote, the segregationist policy that gave them their suburbs. They have forgotten because to remember would tumble them out of the beautiful dream 
and force them to live down here with us, down here in the world. Struggle for the memory of your ancestors. Struggle for wisdom. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. This is breaking open the Dharmakaya. And the Sambhogakaya. All of this throughout space and time, beyond the measure of a single human life, but nevertheless being poured out at each moment of human embodied presence, shining through each of us in every sacred life is the interwoven fleshy body of the entire mysterious universe. This is the Sambhogakaya. And here is quite a potent way that Ta-Nehisi Coates quotes, and it's a complicated quote. I know I could get in trouble for using it, but uh, because he's quoting Malcolm X, um, who said, don't give up your life, preserve your life. But this is our, our focus. He goes on to say, if you have to give it up, make it even Stephen. That's the part that's more complicated. But this is what Ta-Nehisi Coates says in response to that. Preserve your life, don't give up your life. And referring to what Malcolm X said, he said, this was not boasting. It was a declaration of equality rooted not in better angels or the intangible spirit, but in the sanctity of the black body. You preserved your life because your life, your body was as good as anyone's because your blood was as precious as jewels and it should never be sold for magical, for spirituals inspired by the unknowable hereafter. You do not give your precious body to the billy clubs of Birmingham sheriffs, nor to the insidious gravity of the streets. Black is beautiful, which is to say that the black body is beautiful, that black hair must be guarded against the torture of processing and lie, that black skin must be guarded against bleach, and our noses and our mouths must be protected against modern surgery. We are all our beautiful bodies, and so must never be prostate before barbarians, must never submit our original self, our one of one, to defiling and plunder. In this lifetime, save the body, the fruit of many lifetimes. Never submit your original self. Realize your manifestation, the Nirmanakaya. Realize the truth of how, how one lives, the Dharmakaya. Realize the beautiful and inconceivable richness of freedom in which we live, the Sambhogakaya, and save the body. So I know that's quite a bit, but I thought it was maybe useful to speak about a traditional teaching around the body, which is so fundamental in our practice, and how that traditional teaching lives through our challenges of the pandemic, through racist violence, through the trauma that we're all experiencing, and very specifically because I need, think we need to focus on it in terms of racial issues. So please raise your hand. And uh, it's useful to be as specific as you can about your question or what you'd like to share. Uh, so we can use our time well. So please come forward.
Sandra. Hi. I want to change my name. So let us say. Hi, Flynn. Hello, Sandra. Um, thank you so much. It's just uh, so much information that you are giving that I need to listen again. But the only thing I, I can tell you is that what I feel in my body is this um, opening and relief and acceptance. This is the function of our practice, isn't it? Yes. And the function of your work with people through the use of the acupuncture or whatever you're doing, mm -hmm. you want to have the qualities that you just described yeah. through their bodies, which is the foundation of where they live. Yes, and that's mostly what I work, as you say. Mm -hmm. and, and one thing that I, I have a couple questions that inquiries that I started doing to myself lately. Um, the one thing that I would like to add it is, you know, Bessel van yeah. He talks a lot about trauma. And one of the things he realized that, you know, Qigong, um, um, yoga, um, Tai Chi, it's a very good, he does a lot of research with that. Mm -hmm. Not release, but to be in touch with your body, with the trauma that is in your body. Yeah, let the energy begin to move. Exactly. And it's not, I don't see like, everybody would say, well, any exercise, but no, it's the quality of the movement that you do right. with two pra these three practices. And the awakening of the energy, which can be disturbing on the one hand, but ultimately balancing on the other. Exactly. And another thing that is just around my head for, since all this happened with the races, is I remember one, one thing um, came to my mind that I was in a training in Germany and I met this doctor, uh, a physician from Germany. So one thing I, I was very amazed and admired a lot, the culture, how Germany just arise after the Holocaust and the World War II, there was everything destroyed. So my question was, say, how, how do you do this? How do you, so when I asked her, I, I, it was one thing that she told me and just bring to me this comment that she said, you know, I grew up with a lot of shame her whole life. She said, it took a long time for me to really forgive myself mm -hmm. for the shame that she was carrying from her generations. And I think it's something that this is something that is to work to find this exactly. forgiveness. That's part of why I read the quote from um, the author of Grandmother's Hands about if we don't heal it, we pass it on to the next generation. Yes, I read him. And I, it becomes a legacy burden. Yes, and that's what it was happening. Mm -hmm. right? And for me, it's something that I start thinking how, I think it's that how we are going to heal this. Mm -hmm. can, you know, it's because it's a, a cycle. Like for me, I, I haven't lived in this, but I noticed I have this experience since I moved to the States. Mm -hmm. And I just have this in non the deep layers, but it's in there. Yeah. 
Well, this is what our practice is for, precisely. Yeah. To respect our bodies, to use them in accordance with the Dharma so that we can awaken to the fullness and then stop the transmission of that kind of trauma and difficulty, whatever you want to call it, to the next generations. That's our responsibility. It's not just so we'll feel better. Yes. This is thought of the vow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for mentioning that. It's good. Yeah. Thank you, Flynn. Muchísimas gracias. De nada. Hello, John, you're muted there. Can't hear you, you're muted. Probably the bottom left, let's see. There you Unmute, go. There can you, you hear go. it now? That helps. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, about impermanence, something has been bothering me off and on for the last month or so. I had a friend named Steve, who was uh, one of the organizers of a meetup group on time, that was single people, uh, baby boomers. And he was only 65 years old, which is a lot younger than I am. And he died suddenly of mm. complications from dental surgery. And the way that affected me was scary. I had realized that I had been picturing some invisible shield protecting us from death, kind of like a flexible plexiglass. And I realized that wasn't true. Uh, so what the image that came to mind instead was uh, Steve had been shot by a bullet that went through his heart and killed him. And I had been hit by a bullet that went through me but didn't penetrate into vital organs. But it was that close to death for me. Uh, so that left me shaken and vulnerable and afraid, realizing that death could happen to me at any time. That's right, it comes close. <laughs> it comes close, yes. Um, and I won't, you know, I picture myself you know, dying slowly and comfortably in bed, and that might happen uh, some other way completely. That's right. This is the fantasy we hold on to, and some of it is uh, helps us get by, mm-hmm. by holding such an idea. Right. And so, uh, eventually, that that fear, anxiety, kind of went away. So I guess maybe my defenses went back up. It could be. Do you have a particular question, or just reflecting on how this has worked through you? Let me think about that for a second. Uh, no, uh, only that my therapist said that defenses are important. And I had thought previously that it's best not to have defenses at all. Well, you're, you're certainly telling a story that's quite familiar to, I mentioned many, many people, which is we mm-hmm. notice sometimes about the way we push away mm-hmm. the reality of impermanence in terms of our own body, mm-hmm. talking about the body today, how other bodies who fall by the wayside close impacts us and we then realize, oh, this could happen to me. 
and how we move in and out of that, sometimes close and sometimes far away. And that's partly how I think human beings tolerate this knowledge that we'll die little by little. But practice helps us stay closer, not in a morbid way, but in just a simple, realizable way as we lose something simple like your hair turned white (laughs) (laughs) or my hands look like my mother's because of the spots on them, you know, or my knees creak like my father's did. And I realize, oh, I'm getting old too. This was the Buddha's realization, illness, old age, death. Those are the things that woke him up out of the dream and that it could be otherwise. And so what you're doing is the same as every Buddha. You're realizing these and you're doing it in your way based on your structure, your nirmanakaya, your manifestation. The Dharma is moving through you, Dharmakaya, in its own way so that you can realize this greater freedom there, Sambhogakaya. So your body can move into a more free state. Okay, yeah. So an important thing I'm hearing from you this morning is it's okay to have defenses up a lot of the time. And yet to, if I understand you correctly, and yet I can let those defenses down when I'm uh, in a friendship with somebody. It's not about okay or not okay. You're human, so you're going to have them. And there are ways in which we can work with our energies, which are wholesome and good. that Mm -hmm. are kind, that are caring, that are self-compassionate. And others that aren't so good and we don't do so well. So yes, care for yourself. Learn to forgive yourself. Learn to be protective of yourself. And take yourself to the edge. Challenge yourself to look deeper. That's why we need friends. That helps us with with that process. Mm, And sometimes your friend helps you in a way you didn't expect. He dies suddenly. Mm. And then you have to look at something you couldn't have looked at before. So you might want to thank him. Hmm. even along with your grief of his loss. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Um, one of the ways I related to what you were saying is about trauma. Um, and I, I came into Zen in a very traumatic situation and did not leave it for quite a long time and have found a, a situation of domestic violence. Um, and there's a lot of stuff tangled up in there, um, body things and attitude things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found in Zen an open door. I mean, it was certainly part of the healing, uh, the therapy and writing and a lot of other things, but Zen was the path forward. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, actually, it increased the violence, but... Um, eventually uh, led to my leaving. But the thing is, the pain in Zen is a problem. Um, The physical pain? The physical pain. Uh And I have some physical problems, um, which as I get older, increase. Me too. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's it's just part of growing old. Mm. Uh, 
and I find very a push-pull. Um, I mean, you have to have a certain amount of discipline. Uh, you need to sit. Uh, and I find that long sitting helps things clarify and settle and, and, and there's inside and there's many gifts from that. Sure. Um, but then the pain, the pain increases. Well, and, it's important to do it in a way that's wholesome enough that you're not adding to your pain so much. You may have some discomfort, maybe just anybody who sits for a long time might have it, but sit in a way that is comfortable enough that you're not overwhelmed and distracted by too much physical pain, even though it may be a little challenging just to sit for a while because you understand its benefit. I can tell. Yeah. And, and one place it comes into immediate focus is at home. Usually when I sit, I lie down uh -huh. but the with that is that often that turns into sleep. Sure. Um, and I also think that part of being embodied is a posture of alertness and reaching and lying down is very receptive, mm -hmm. but it isn't, it isn't as, it isn't as active reaching. Um, well, you can you can discern the difference, and that's important. What's wrong with your rocking chair there? Well, as as a place to sit. Yeah. Well, that's a thought. Because part of it is you kind of lock up with arthritis, and if you're making little movements, that's a possibility. That's Please a possibility. try it. If you can, if you can maintain that sort of upright posture, which I know that's what you're calling reaching, some effort but in yeah. a way that's not harmful or hurtful, so you're so overwhelmed. And if you can maintain a little bit of rhythm, it's, it's okay, it's not traditional, it doesn't matter. If that can keep you awake and in alignment with your vow and with the practice that you know has been helpful to you, then, then please do that. Okay. It's, it's, it's an edge because we're not saying just willy-nilly do whatever you want to because you feel uncomfortable. That's not the point. Right. I'm saying that to everybody but to you specifically because of your situation. I can tell that you're committed to it. And I can tell that you understand its benefit. So find a way that still helps you move forward, that's the Dharmakaya, with your particular manifestation body, the Nirmanakaya. So you continue to reach this larger space, the Sambhogakaya, which you know feeds back into your embodied uh, wellness and goodness. Okay. Yes. Thanks for asking. That's a really good question, especially for those of us who are getting older and can't sit in exactly the same way anymore. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. This isn't the uh, no pain, no gain school. We are asked to bring ourselves wholeheartedly and fully into the moment, but there's no correlation of greater pain, greater benefit. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Flynn. Well, let me see if I can make everything bigger. I like that. So, I'm very anxious. I had to force myself to click that raise your hand. Mm-hmm. There's something that's been on my mind for over a month 
and uh, I'm going to need help kind of condensing it or focusing on it. I live in a co-housing community. There are 30 households. Um, in my co-housing community, there is a woman who is black, very black, which I didn't realize can be an issue. And her daughter, who's about 20, uh, who's recently described herself as a comfortable black. Um, so this woman is a diversity trainer who works with institutions. Um, she also has a lung disease, so she's a serious disability. Mm -hmm. So what is my question? My question is for myself and others in this community, how we can be with the tremendous anger uh, that this woman and her daughter uh, visit upon members of the community. I've been observing this for three and a half years. It's like, <clears throat> it's not in the form of education. It seems to be shaming, blaming, guilt tripping, and a lot of aggression. Um, an incident that occurred on uh, just a month ago was in the garden. Can I stop you just for a second? I need you to help me. Yeah, before you go into help more, me. I get the idea of what you're asking. Okay, it's so yeah. hard. And, the, and of course, no one has an answer to this question in a way. Um, what comes to mind, do you have a relationship with her at all? This is a hard thing. The reason I ask is because I wondered if you had enough of a relationship to speak to her. Or... That's the huge problem is um, I and others have reached the point where we just no longer reach out to her or speak to her because there's no dialogue. Even a woman who has a black daughter and a black ex-husband said, I can't tell her anymore how I feel. It's too dangerous. This, do you ask how she feels? Um, not, not just how she feels, but really, I know what you're saying. it's more I know like what would, be, what would be satisfying? How could I, do you want to relate to me? She may not want to, that's nothing you can do about that. But right. you can always ask, you can say, I, I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm kind of helpless here, but I don't want to do nothing. And so I'm, I'm not sure what to do other than just to ask, is there something that I could offer or be just be with you in a way that might be satisfying? It wouldn't be just further triggering. And just see if you get any information. And I've thought about that since I thought that was a great dialogue someone had earlier. Uh, so the experience of many of us and myself, I'm going to say, no, I'm not going there again. Because the response and the information is always white. I am not going to be your black um, educator. Sure. Always white. And I've taken quite a lot of 
And so That's since I arrived here, but I'm still right. I understand, like, that, I understand that position. It's not at my job to educate you. You're supposed to know. Uh huh. Yeah, and you can say, and I'll I'll continue to do my own education, but I'm talking about me and you. Yeah, I know. Is there any way that I? Oh. Could I could be you. Yeah. 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 Make it personal, body to body. Otherwise, there's no dialogue. And that's nothing you can do about that. It's been pretty challenging. I, I, can, I can hear it. Actually, because after reaching out in many ways and doing things I hoped were connecting and having dialogues, mm -hmm. personal dialogues, it's like, okay, I guess. Uh, my question seems a little self-centered after all these years of trying to say, how can I be with you? Um, I think I can't reach out and be friendly in any way anymore. Mm -hmm. but that's hard. Yeah. That's hard. They have to, what you may be left with and we're going to have to stop here in a moment. It's yeah, I know. You may just be left with a grief. Um, not every problem is solvable. Not every relationship is resolvable. But it's a trigger for something. There's transformation happening in you as a result of this difficult kind of thing. I have a lot of grief that, right. that these people are in constant pain. And... All attempts, yeah, even in the... So are, and so are you. It's a shared pain. And I am too. Thank you. That helps. It's a shared pain on either side of the table. Yeah. Yeah. That every overture is rejected. Yeah. Yeah. That's enough. It's a shared pain. And hard. Thanks it's for bringing this forward. Whoa. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. I see that we have one minute. If, so, if the next person has a brief statement or question, that would be fine. The moderator can help. Well, we're at our ending time here, but let's see what Rosemary has to say. Okay. Hi. Hi. I don't have your audio uh, video there, but. Ah, here I am. There you are. Okay. Hi. Uh, yes, I will be quick. Um, you know, my practice is very new and I'm appreciating all of the talk about the body. Growing up Catholic, it was the exact opposite teaching that the body was something that had to be denied, that the feel good of the body was always a bad thing. Not dangerous. Um, what's that? Dangerous. Dangerous, exactly. So it's it's quite an adjustment, and it's 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 a relief, but it's quite an adjustment. This that it's okay, not only okay, it's where we're starting. That's right. So it's just a comment. Thank that, you. That's good. That's good. It's a nice uh, completion too, where we started. Save the body in this lifetime. Save the body, the fruit of many lifetime. It's something to uh, take care of. We're given a body, and we'll let go of a body. And by the way, one, one quick thing, I'm standing because I, so I'm saving my body because I have a herniated disc and standing is better today. So oh, I'm saving. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. 
at the end, we typically chant the four practice principles three times. Um, rather than the shared chanting this time, I want to suggest reflect for a second because we're going to have to go and be uh, good stewards of our time. Um, that when we say caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, these dreams, it, it just means all the thoughts, the narratives, the ways in which um, our self-centeredness and our small focus, and there's so many ways we don't even realize it. And some of the issues around racism are showing us that. Some of the cultural wars around the pandemic are showing us that. Some of the ways in which we realize our own trauma has limited us is showing us that. And holding to the same narratives and perspectives keeps that dream going. That's the cycle of suffering. At each moment, life as it is, if we have a capacity to soften and tolerate looking deeper, is the only teacher is the teachings, is the Dharma Kaya begins to open. The body of the, 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 the awakened Buddha begins to open up. So that being just this moment, being in the presencing, the Dharma Kaya, is compassion's way. So I hope that some of this has been useful. I know it's been a lot, but I wanted to piece together these three areas and the three bodies of the Buddha and show how they're, they're relevant today. May your practice continue in a wholesome way every single day. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you so much, Flint. And thank you so much, everyone, for your practice and your questions and your presence. Um, Apamata's programs are freely offered so that everyone may participate regardless of their means. Everyone is welcome and supported on their spiritual path here. We are grateful for the generosity of those who are able to contribute in support of our Sangha, these programs, and our teachers. If you'd like to help support Apamata or our teachers, um, you may offer Donna on the Apamata website, and it'll just be under the website under Contribute and you can take a look there. Thank you all so much 